word. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. We'll be reading from verses 16 to 25. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our faith without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the assurance that we have in you. We have sang of it over and over this morning. We have sang of the assurance that the battle is already won. Father, we pray that you help us remember that in the face of, of whatever life throws at us, in the face of, of the storms that we're currently facing. Help us to hold on to that assurance that that battle itself is already won. Father, we thank you for, for paying the debt that we could never pay, for pay, taking on the debt that we owe and paying it fully. Father, we could never repay that. Help us to live in a way that our lives commend the gospel to others. Father, we thank you for those good works that you have prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Father, we thank you for that provision also. Father, help us to be faithful in living that out. Father, as we open your word this morning, Father, we pray that you speak to us. We pray that your spirit illuminates your word and that your word transforms us through the power of your spirit. Father, we thank you for your vessel, David, this morning, as he opens your word to us. Father, we pray a special anointing for him. We pray that you give him the boldness to speak your word. Father, we pray that your word comes forth with power, comes forth with clarity, and brings about conviction where conviction is needed. Father, we pray that above everything else, that you are glorified during this time, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.
I love that new song, Kevin. Great pick. You know, I think if if I could change one thing, at least in terms of, um, oh, you're staying there. <laughs> if I could change one thing in terms of how we sing that together, and I'm not asking you to do this, but but I would say we're fighting a battle that you've already won because it it is definitely it is us together fighting a battle that has already been won um, in Christ. He has done it. It is complete. Um, And so that's really why we are rethinking church fellowship. That's why this is the second week of us looking at what it means to be the church, what it means to be a body, a fellowship of believers. And if I were to have to summarize kind of where I, I think the Lord is taking us in this new year, uh, if I were to bring a, a word, I've, I've wrestled with this. I don't know if this is the right word or not, but but I'm going to explain it so maybe it doesn't matter. Um, but it would be something along the lines of simplifying. We've talked a lot about how we're doing ministry. We're trying to simplify ministry so that it's not difficult, so that it's not hard to actually start meeting the needs of the people around us, for people within the church to be able to minister. We want to be able to come alongside and help and support. And so we want to kind of simplify how we do things. We want to simplify really what it means to be the church. We want to kind of go back to this this New Testament idea of being the church. And and so many times we talk about church fellowship, it's usually an event. I talked about this last week. It's often an event, and, and it's so much more than that. And so we'll get back into that. We'll kind of look at those definitions again. But I want to start by giving you a question to ponder, uh, to think through as we're working through this text that we read this morning. Uh, We'll be focusing on 19 to 25, but 16 gives us the context. But I want to ask you this question, which is simply, why are you here? Why are you here at this place? Why are you here at this church? This is not to say, hey, why are you here? But it's like, just, just why? If you think about, if you're sitting there and you think, there's a reason why I keep coming to this body of believers. Why, why is that? What is the driving motivational force? What is it that, that causes you that? Now, I hope that at, you know, when all is said and done, you're able to simply say, the Lord has called me. That's exactly what I hope. That's what it should be. But there can be other reasons why you do that. And, and one of the reasons might be because of relationships, because you've got good relationships here. And you want good relationships, and you want relationships for your kids, and you want relationships that, that are grounded in the same kind of things that you believe. And that's a good thing. That's a good reason. That's a good start. It's not the only reason, but it certainly is a good reason. And so I ask you, are you in the process of building good, strong relationships? Good, strong, deep relationships that last. Relationships that are not based on the circumstances, but are strong. And not just strong, but transformational. They change. The the relationships that you have lead to your further growth in Christ, for you becoming a better version of yourself in Christ. Are the kind of relationships you're building doing that? Are you building relationships like that? So maybe relationships, or maybe service. You want a place that you can you can make a difference. You can make a difference in the world. And so the church is that place. And certainly that is also a part of it, you know, serving together, uh, making an impact on our world. Are you being used according to your giftedness? Are you actually using the gifts that you have within the life of the church to make an impact? Again, that's a part of it. 
Maybe it's worship. Maybe it's because you love joining together with other believers, lifting up the name of Jesus together in song, and you want to hear the word proclaimed. Great. That's wonderful. Are you engaged in worship? Are you doing more than just coming and partaking, being here, being present, singing the songs? Are you engaged in worship in such a way that it actually is changing you? So that when you leave this group of people, you are continuing in your worship of the Lord Jesus, and it strengthens that, and it's poured out over in the world in which you live outside of these walls. And it's impacting your relationships outside. And so you could say that as you gather together, you are being strengthened, you're being formed in likeness of Christ, and you're going out, and that worship is starting to exude from your life in many different ways. Is that the case? Another option is that it's just what you kind of do. You were raised in the church, and that's what you do. You know, you go because it makes you feel better. You kind of, most people don't just go, well, check, that's done. That We don't usually have that kind of a cavalier attitude about it, but it's just that we, it's a, it's kind of a religious ritual that we do. It's, it's a habit. It's what we, how we were raised, what have you. And if that's where you are, I'm, I'm not throwing rocks at you, but I want so much more for you than that. I believe the Lord wants so much more for you from that. It's more than just a religious experience. And I'm afraid that you are missing out on so much of the blessing that comes with actually being a part of the church, experiencing the blessings of his people. So when we look in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, we first need to ask the question of this letter, obviously, because normally we go straight through books and we're not doing that today. We have gone through the book of Hebrews before, and we, I'm sure we will again. Um, but we need to ask the question, to whom is this, this letter written? Who is this written to? We're not sure who it's written by, but do we know who it is written to? If you're kind of struggling with that one, look, kind of look at the title. You got a, got a, a hint right there in the title. It's written to the Hebrews. It is. But, but if we go a little bit further, further, what Hebrews? What kind of Hebrews? Who, what, all the Hebrews? Who, who are we talking about? Who's this letter written to? Well, if we get to that one, we can see hints. We're not told. If you go to the beginning of the book, the letter, it's, it's jumps right into Jesus, right? It's not like a lot of the letters that say, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the grace of God, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say to the Hebrew Christians at blah, blah, blah. This goes right into Jesus. <laughs> Excuse me. But if we look at the first verse, the first part of verse 19, we get a really, really strong clue because it starts off saying, therefore, brothers and sisters. Now, this is important. It's important for, for us to understand this and not to miss what should be the obvious, right? So this is not some deep secret that I'm about to tell you or insight. But it is very important that we understand for us to truly get the heart of what the writer is telling us, who is, who are the recipients? And it is the brothers and sisters. So I want you to see that this indicates the family of God. He's writing to members of the family of God, to the ecclesia, the church, right? We said last week, the ecclesia in broad sense is 
a gathering of called out ones, a gathering of those who are called together. And so he's writing to the ecclesia in that, in that it is the church. Remember last week also, we looked at it and said, quickly in the New Testament, ecclesia came to be known as the church. It was called the church. They were interchangeable. So when they talked about the ecclesia in the Bible, it is the church. And when we talk about the called out ones, what are we called to? It is those who have been called to salvation. That's important because this is not a social club. The church is a group of those who have been called through Jesus Christ, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, repented of their sins, and they are a part of the universal church. Therefore, they can be a part of the local expression of the church. Now, if you're here and that's not you, don't, I'm not asking you to walk out. I'm asking you to stay because I want you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that it is through Christ that we are saved and Christ alone. It's not of our own efforts. It's not something we've done. It's all Christ all the time from start to finish. But as far as those who make up the local expression of churches, those who have been called to salvation and those, therefore, who have also been called to serve, to be a part of the kingdom of God in the world. And that comes through serving, through using your gifts and talents for the glory of God, by the leading of the spirit of God, for the family of God, and then for the world as well. So the Bible is the word of God to the family of God. And so this is written to the brothers and sisters. Now this writer is going to, uh, to call us to some things as the family, but first he wants to teach us or to remind us of what God has done that makes this all possible some foundational things that we need to understand and make sure that as the church, these are a part of our understanding and our motivation because it is definitely our source. So he talks about God's provision for the church in verses 19 to 21. And so when we look at verse 19, both of these two start with the word since. So you see it right there, right? Since. And what he is indicating is, since these things have been done, right? Since these things are true, not when these things happen or if they occur, but since these are realities, since these are things that God provided, God executed, and God has, has uh, accomplished, he says, since that, and that's based largely, uh, it was summarized in verses 16 to 18, what Jesus did. And so since we have a boldness, he says, a boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. And that's that kind of stops right there because this down here is sort of a, a parenthetical phrase to emphasize what that first part says. So since we have boldness, now I can ask you, do you have boldness? And you might go, I'm not a very bold person. I'm not, it's not really who I am. I'm a little shy. I don't really assert myself. But this is not really how do you feel. This is not do you feel bold. This is something that has been provided to you. You have a boldness to enter into the sanctuary. What's the sanctuary? That's where God is. So in other words, saying you have a boldness, you have a right to go into the very presence of God, boldness, because because you you otherwise would not. You you would be on your face if you were in God's presence. You You would be killed because of his glory. But But the Bible says here that you have a boldness to enter into the sanctuary, the very presence, the throne room of God. It's what we sang about already. How? Why do you have a boldness? 
You have a boldness for one reason and one reason only. It is through the blood of Jesus. That is it. That is the only reason. That is the only way. But because you do, because of what Jesus did, you do have a boldness. Now you need to act on that. We'll get to that. But you have a boldness. And then it talks about here, he has inaugurated this for us. So this is something that has been put into effect for the first time. You didn't have a boldness, but Jesus inaugurated this right for you to go into the presence of God. And it tells us how. It's a new thing. That would be, we could look at that as the new covenant, right? Because that this is a new thing that he inaugurated, that he brought. It is a living way. Why? Because it was through the curtain and that curtain was his flesh. So it's not a thing. It's a, it's a person. It's a he. He has done this. This gives you boldness. This gives you a birthright that when you are born into the family of God, this is now your right. You can say, I have trusted in Jesus. I am a child of God. I have a boldness that has been given to me that I can go into the very presence of God. That is a huge, huge statement. So So then we can boldly come to him. We are welcomed into his presence. It is not like the one who timidly goes in and is hoping that he won't kill me. But it's like, come in here. You're mine. Come on in. The way has been paved. You can come to me anytime you want to. And I want you to. That's huge for the God of the creation to say that. And so we can know also that God is good, that he is in control, and that he loves you. It's also another very huge statement that should make an amazing impact in our lives. And this means there is nothing that the enemy can do to us when we can run right up into the room of our dad, our father, our Abba. And we can cry out right at his throne in prayer. So that's, that's huge. That's the first one, since we have a boldness. So we have to remember that. That's something that is a provision. That's something that a provision of God that allows us to do the things that we are told to do, okay? Foundational. If you want to write one word, foundational, Jesus, right there. Jesus from start to finish. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. The second sense statement, if you want to call it, is in 21. There's that word again. Since, which reminds us what? Something that has been done. Something that has been provided. Since it is the truth, you can bank on it. And since you can bank on it, you can actually do this. You can rely on this. And then it says that we have a great high priest. What is a great high priest? What is a high priest? A high priest is one who is a go-between. It is one who goes on your behalf in the tabernacle. You would have the priest, you would have the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. The people wouldn't go. Well, this is something like an extra. Yes, I am invited right into the very throne room of God. But on top of that, the one who secured my way in is there going to the Father on my behalf. That's huge. That's huge. I'm not left to fend for myself. I'm not left to be on my own. I have been bought. I've been purchased. I've been, more importantly, adopted into the very throne room of God. So we have this great high priest over the house of God. That's the kingdom of God. That includes the church, all things that are related to God's kingdom. So since we do have this great 
high priest over the house of God, we understand that we have someone who intercedes for us, that Jesus himself, as our big brother, that sounds odd to say, but it's true, it's the way scripture describes it as well, and our Savior and Lord goes to the Father on our behalf. And I don't want you to get the picture that this is Jesus going before the Father to appease him and to say, look, I know you don't like these people, but would you, would you give them a little attention? Just give them five minutes to be all right. It's not like that. Jesus himself in John 16, 27 says, look, the Father himself loves you. So you have all of the Godhead that loves you with all of the Godhead's love. That's massive. That should give you such a sense of comfort and peace and strength. And if you're really thinking about it, it should give you a really great sense of humility. It doesn't puff you up like, look at what God does for me. If you really understand it, you go, why would you do this for me? Why would you do this for me? And yet you did. Oh, I don't want you to miss something. If we go back, let's look back at 19. Okay, since it says since, look at that right there, we have boldness. This is kind of what I was talking about with the song, right? Over here in 21, since we have a great high priest. This we can only mean the church. It means the ecclesia. It can only mean the ecclesia, the house of God, which is the universal church that is comprised of believing Jews, right? They were the people through which the promise came. It's believing Jews and believing Gentiles who are non-Jews who repent, who confess Jesus as Lord, who live out that life of faith in the local expression of the church, of the ecclesia, the body of Christ. And in that local expression, here's where this gets to what I was talking about. God wants more for you. In that local expression, God's will is not that we engage in meaningless exercises. You don't go through ritual. We don't come here just to go through the motions and go home feeling good about ourselves. That's worthless. You can do that anywhere. It's it's so much more than that. Instead, he wants us to experience koinonia. Koinonia. Last week, I put up a definition. I told you that it was a working definition. And I proved that it's a working definition because I changed one of the words as I was thinking back through it. And you know what? More of it might change because it is a very expansive kind of idea that God has for his church. So I want to put that definition back up there. We're going to briefly look at it. We looked at it more in depth last week, but I briefly want to look at this. So I've got several things here at the beginning. Koinonia is a deep, self-revelatory, self-sacrificing covenant relationship. All right, we're talking about this. Break it down. It is deep. We are not going to satisfy for shallow. We're not going to be satisfied with surface, that we want deep relationships. We want relationships that go into the heart of the matter. Shallow, you know, acquaintances are good. They're fine, but they don't really change my life very much, right? Even if it's some famous person that I met, it's like, hey, I met blah, blah, blah. Didn't really change my life. It was just gave me something that I can say, hey, look at me, I met so-and-so, but it didn't change my life. It's the real relationships that are deep, that go below the surface, that get to the heart of the matter. And that happens through the self-revelation. That's the second one. I have to give something of myself. I have to open up something about myself. I got to reveal something about myself. It's hard for us to go deep if we don't know each other. And we don't know each other if we're not revealing 
That's risky. I get that. I get that. It's risky. It's scary. But this is what God has for us. It's self-revelatory, but it's also self-sacrificing. In other words, it's not all about me. It's not mostly about me. Most of the way this works is the more I give of myself, I sacrifice my desire, my money, my time, my my ability or, or my right or my desire to have it all be talking about me and my problems. The more I lay that aside and pour myself into someone else and they're doing the same thing, there is a residual benefit where my needs are met. But I get blessing as I pour myself out. I sacrifice what I think should be about me and I give of myself the way Christ gave for the church. And now we're starting to see something going here. Now we're going deeper with each other. We're revealing stuff about ourselves, trusting each other more, testing it and seeing that there's more that we can, that you know what, these people are in the same situation I am and they love me and that's the love of Jesus, right? If we're, bo- if we're bound by the love of Jesus, that, that is a safe space if we're walking in that. It's self-revelatory, it's self-sacrificing and it is a covenant relationship. That's so important because it means we're not going anywhere. We're not running anymore. Enough of that. Covenant relationships means I'm going to stay here and I'm going to work it out. I'm going to try to love you through it. I'm going to do it in, a, in an imperfect way. It's going to be messy sometimes. That's, that's us in relationship. But, but you're not going to scare me off. And you're not going to run me off in the sense that I don't like what you're saying, so I'll leave. No, we're going to stay and we're going to work that out together in covenant relationship. We're going to do the hard work of relationships. Now we're starting to see this is something that we really can't do. We can't do it. The only reason we can do this is because it is an ecclesia established by, let me get rid of some of this, established by the effectual call of the Father into unity with Christ. It is something that God does. Remember, the ecclesia is established by the calling out of God and into relationship and is called into unity with Christ. I told you, sub, put below the floor, the foundation, Jesus. It's because it is through Jesus, a unity with Jesus based on the atoning work of Christ. So koinonia is established by Jesus, not us. We simply partake in it by faith in his power and then expressed in, get rid of that, expressed in, The same kind of unity. Now, there's the word I changed. I said it was the same kind of relationship, but it's the same kind of unity that is here. We are unified. We are brought together in Christ, and that causes us to be unified with each other, right? With each other as we hear, respond to, and live according to the gospel. And I think that's important. If we're not doing that, it's going to be hard for us to be united. We'll talk about that in a second, too. This may end up being a sermon in two parts. If it is, that's okay, but there's a lot of stuff that's important for us to cover, so we'll see what we go. Um, so when we get past this, this idea, this definition of koinonia, we're going to see how the writer of Hebrews helps us to know what it looks like, right? So again, we've said, since we have boldness and since we have a great high priest, we could put a, like an implied, we could put the word then, right? Right before verse 22, So since this has happened and since this has happened, now let us do this. In light of that, in power of that, because of that, by provision of that, 
let us do these things. Very important that we get that. Otherwise, we're going to just keep trying to do stuff on our own and our own power. But he says, since we have the boldness, since we have the great high priest, then let us live with conviction. Let us hold on to our confession and let us take seriously our commitment. So we get in the last, these last passages. So we're going to break these down real quick. So verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart. Now we've already been told we have been given boldness and now we're told to draw near with that boldness, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. These are things that have been done either to or for us, right? That's what we got in the first, in 19 to 21, right? Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. What's that? It's Jesus. Jesus has done that through his atoning work. So since we have that, he says, let us draw near, right? But here's the thing, even though those things have been done for us, we still have to actually draw near. We have to actually move closer to him. So why wouldn't we actually do that? Because we don't always. Why wouldn't we actually draw near? Well, a couple of things that came to my mind. One is doubt. You ever dealt with doubt? You ever been in that place where you're like, does God really love me? Does he really care for me? Does he really know my name? Has he really forgiven me? Is he, is he not mad at me anymore, really? Doubt can do that. Abiding guilt. Maybe I've been forgiven my sins according to the word of God. But sometimes, even though God has forgiven me, sometimes I haven't forgiven myself. and I'm struggling with that. And I'm still feeling guilty over past sin. And that can keep me from actually coming into his presence. He doesn't want to see me. I, can't, I, gotta, I gotta deal with this first. I gotta get over this. And we, we buy that lie of the enemy because the actual truth is God says, no, because you can't get over that, come to me. Because, you, you, you've, because you're struggling, come to me. But that can keep us from actually coming. So the remedy is to draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart that has been changed and a full assurance of faith. Now the word is clear that we have been washed as white as snow and that our sins are forgiven. Yet sometimes there is a disconnect between the fact of cleansing and the feeling of cleansing. And sometimes those feelings can override the fact of what we know, that our heart will tell us something that our head knows. And that's why you don't follow your heart. You don't follow your heart. So just if y'all can just rule that out of your whole vocabulary, follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is deceptive. It will always deceive you. It's going to go by what it looks at and takes all the information in, assesses and says, well, my heart says to go this way. Well, what if your heart is leading you to the edge of a cliff? You're following it? And yet that's what we do. Don't follow your head. Follow what you know to be true. But that's the hard part. It's the hard part because we follow that. And on top of that, we've got the accuser that's telling us all the time that, no, he doesn't love you. No, you aren't worth it. No, he doesn't know your name. Yes, you are that bad of a sinner, which I always turn that around. I'm a pretty good sinner, unfortunately, but that's the way, that's what we're talking about. So what weaponry do I have at my disposal? Number one, and most importantly, the gospel. So we have to preach the gospel to ourselves all day, every day because of what Christ has done for me. I have the written word of God full of promises that I can remind myself of. Let me just give you a few. I got a whole page 
And that was just a start. I got a whole page, man. If I had time, I'd be chucking these things off. But let me give you just a couple. All right. Here's one. Romans chapter five, verse one. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the same kind of language that the writer of Hebrews used. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Staying in Hebrews, going back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's pretty cool. Ephesians chapter 1, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Let me give you one more. Psalm 103, 10 to 12, 10 to 12. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Let me ask you, how high is the heavens above the earth? Are the heavens above the earth? How high is that? Can you measure that? Take out your rulers. How far is the east from the west? Do you get a picture of the magnitude of the promises of God? It's huge. It's beyond comprehension. And yet this is true. If you want more of these, I'll give them to you later. But even still, even with these promises, even though this is true, if the attacks are bad enough, it is possible to forget or even disbelieve that these promises are for me. And so in that, at that point, I'm really no better off. So what now? What do I do now? Because I, I need something else to go with that written word, some, something outside of my own experience that can speak hope and truth into my doubt and into my guilt. I need the church. I need the ecclesia. I need that gift of God that he has given to go along with his word, to flesh out his word with me, to me, for me. I often need people to speak these words into my life, reminding me of the truth and combating the words of the enemy with words of the gospel spoken authoritatively into my life. I am so grateful for those of you in this room who have at times spoken truth into my life when I've struggled. And I am so grateful that I have heard of how truth has been spoken into your life by others. That is the provision of God. It's not something that is a, a, an add-on. You go, well, I got my Bible. Yes, you do. But that's not all that God has given you. He's given you the church in order to flesh that out together. And so we need to go on offense when the gospel, when the God, with the gospel, when the enemy comes at us. Because it is the power to God to salvation. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that we have everything that we need for godliness. So we have 
a call to conviction. Verse 23. Uh, skip that because I skipped that one. Okay, verse 23. Let us hold to our confession. It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since we, uh, since he who promised is faithful. That is the ground, the grounding, the foundational. He who promised is faithful. It's one thing if somebody promises you something and they're not very faithful. They've got a track record of not going, not fulfilling what they've promised you, of going back on their word. Maybe they have good reasons and yet they're doing it. Jesus, God, the Father has no reasons. There are no reasons. There's no because he doesn't ever go back. There are no excuses. He doesn't go back on his word because he who promised is faithful. And if he promised it, he will bring it together. So we hold on to the confession of our hope together. The confession that Christ, the eternal Son of God, has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil through his atoning, atoning death, his burial, and his resurrection. That, the, that he ascended to, the, uh, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, but that he will never leave us or forsake us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and that he will come again to take us home. He promised that. And because he is faithful, he will do it. Now, why did I say we have to hold on to this confession together? Because on our own, by ourselves, doing that lone ranger kind of a thing that we kind of be, are prone to do, the centrifugal force of life can stress us to our limits, threatening to spin us off into confusion and doubt and disbelief. We need the collective strength of the body of Christ to hold on to the hope that we have in Christ. When jobs are lost, when loved ones die, when difficult times of all different shades and colors come our way. Depression sets in and hopelessness is knocking at the door. How are we going to stand? You know, when Moses was called to lead the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites attacked at one point. And Moses was to hold up his arms with the rod of God. It was the rod of God, not Moses' arms. That was the key here. It was the representation of God's presence and power. He was told to hold up his arms while he sent Joshua in to fight the battle. And as long as Moses' arms were upstretched up on the hill overlooking the battle, as long as they were up, the Israelites were winning the battle. If they came down, the tides would turn. Well, you know... If you hold your arms up long enough, I could put this, this pin in my hand long enough. That pin starts to feel heavy. Imagine a big staff in your arms, but uh, holding up his arms over the time of this battle, over hours, eventually they start to shake and they start to come down and you begin to see the tide turning in the battle and he's fighting to keep those arms up, right? So that the battle can be won, but it only goes so long. And so it begins to to give under the weight of gravity. And so at that point, Aaron and her, they come and they slide a rock up behind Moses. They sit him down. And as he's sitting on the rock, they come on either side and they hold his arms up. And the Israelites win the battle. Why is it that way? Because number one, it was God's battle. It was God's battle. But Moses was called to do something. Moses was called to hold it high. 
But the reality is Moses couldn't hold it alone. He couldn't stand there all that time. He needed help. And because of Aaron and her, Moses fulfilled his task of lifting up the name of the Lord and the people won the victory. We are not called to do this alone, yet we too often act like this is an individual event when God has called us as a team battle. We're fighting a battle that he's already won, but we're fighting the battle. And we're fighting the battle together. He's given us everything that we need, need to win. But the reality is when all that is pushed aside, we're still doing it on our own. We're still going it alone for for various reasons. One is because you're afraid to risk it. That whole koinonia self-revelatory thing has got you wigged out. And so so you're not going to do it. You're not engaging in those kind of relationships because you're afraid to trust. I get you. I understand that, but this is required of us if we're going to enter into those relationships. You're not going to have a deep koinonia type relationship if you're just constantly holding back. Like you get into a D group and you never really say anything of of substance because can I trust these folks? It's going to take just stepping out and trusting Jesus. You got to trust Jesus to do that. Sometimes you're just simply too far out from the from the koinonia fellowship. You're out on the periphery. You're not engaging with the body. You're, you're here, but you're not really engaging. So you're, you're simply too far out on the edges to experience it. So you're still doing it on your own. And a third reason could be just too prideful to ask for help. I get that one too. This is not be down on you. This is just, hey, this is the way it is. Sometimes we're just too prideful to ask for help. And so we end up going it alone and we end up getting beat up because all three of these amount to a high probability of defeat in the battle that the enemy is waging against you. It's not that you're waging a battle. It's being waged against you. You can go, well, I'm a peace lover. It doesn't matter. He's still coming after you. You're still going to be under attack. So let's stop letting our common enemy win battles he's not entitled to. So thirdly, verses 24 and 25. Commitment. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging encouraging each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. So I want us to, to look back at this word here, not that one, at this word, consider. Let us consider one another because we looked that word up. This idea of consider means give careful thought to. In other words, it's not a passing thought. Let us, let us think for a minute about how to provoke love and good works. Let, let's think about, no, this is to contemplate. Let me sit and think and dwell on how can I communicate love? How can I encourage person X, Y, or Z or all of them to love and good works and the things that we're called to do? You know, when I first met Karen and took an interest and a liking into her, I didn't have a passing thought about her. I thought a lot about her. And I started thinking, how can I communicate how I feel to her? How can I communicate how I want to relate to her, that I want to be that kind of person who cares for her? who watches after her, who provides for her, right? That took careful thought as I was thinking because it was just something that came naturally. So we in the church ought to be the kind of people that say, how can I help 
this person that I'm thinking about, how can I help them move forward? How can I help them be more like Jesus? How can I help them overcome sin in their lives? Consider is something that we are to do and something we have the privilege of doing and something we are able to doing because of those two statements in verses 19 to 21. Therefore, let us consider one another for the purpose of, in order to, Provoke love and good works. This is, here they are. It's three things here. For us to provoke love and good works. <coughs> Excuse me. So this, this idea of love and good works. Promote love within the body. What can I do? That's a, a thousand different things. But the Spirit of God may call you to something specific. Good works are actually an outflow of the love. If I love somebody, it's going to be followed by good works. And so if I am loving people, I am going to be involved in whatever good works the Lord leads me to, to display and support that love that I have for them. So we are to promote love and good works. Are you doing that? Are you an agent of peace and love and grace in this body? Are you actively loving people? Are you actively involved in good works for their benefit, for the benefit of the body as a whole? Are you out on the periphery? Are you not really engaged? Are you just receiving? All of these are questions you really need to ask yourself. Secondly, to encourage meeting together, right? To to encourage meeting together. Now, the way that it was actually said is not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. So it is this idea of, not neglecting meeting together. So that would be, don't just not neglect it, but encourage that. Encourage meeting together. uh, Calling each other to be involved in each other. And this is not just something we do on Sunday mornings. It can't be that. It's got to be us wanting to be in each other's lives at other times. Wanting to be together, whether it's doing dinner, uh, taking the, the the incentive to go to someone and say, hey, I want to get to know you better. Hey, I want, to, I want to be involved in your life in some way. How can I help you? So that we are doing it. Man, I'm going to tell you, this is happening in this church. I'm hearing stories of how that is happening among certain groups. Let's broaden that. Let's expand on that so that we as a body are doing that collectively and more people are involved in that. So we are to encourage to meet together. And then finally, for us to grow in encouragement. So he says, encourage each other more and more as the day approaches. So one thing that we know for sure is that things are getting harder. Times are getting tougher. It's getting harder to be a Christian. We talked last week about the fact that we're really moving out of a post-Christian to really an anti-Christian. You see that people look at at Christianity negatively, not just it's irrelevant, but it's actually hurting the culture. Those are the things you'll, you'll hear. Christianity is actually hurting the culture. Now, that's actually a good thing. Good, because the culture is, I mean, heading down, heading downhill. So if we're a threat to that, that's good, as long as we're not being threatening. As long as it's through our love that we are standing on truth. Not beating people down, but showing them the truth of the gospel and the love that Jesus has. That's a difference, but it's the same thing. And so the times are getting hard, but the encouragement as we encourage more and more is hold on, continue loving, continue being there, being involved, being engaged because Jesus is coming back. That's also the way that this is viewed as the days are carrying on. The day is approaching. So we have to show up. 
We have to show up. We have to be physically and emotionally and spiritually present. When there's a need, show up and help. Maybe that helping is in saying absolutely nothing. Just being present. If there's an opportunity to encourage someone, show up. If there's an opportunity to grow in, uh, in our community, show up and develop relationships. Opportunity to worship, worship together. Understand that we are a family. Show up, determined to be the outpost of grace as we strengthen each other through the declared word of God as it is proclaimed. Be present. Be present. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word of truth and encouragement, Lord. I find so much encouragement in this passage in Hebrews. God, all that you have done for us, all that you have done and will continue to do through us, it is an amazing, amazing thing to think about. And because you are good, it is true. I pray that that would be evidenced and lived out in this body of believers, Lord, um, that we would reach out and care for people who desperately need the hope that we have in Christ that we would love people well, that we would live our faith out in such a way that it is attractive. God, I don't want us to be the kind of people who are offensive because only the gospel is offensive in its, in its magnitude of how much grace that seems unbelievable, Lord. And the gospel confronts our sin where we are, and we don't like that. But I pray, Father, that we will live it in such a way that even that is attractive to people because of the hope, the joy, and the peace that we have as a body. Help us, Lord Jesus, to grow in these things for your glory. Amen. I invite you to stand together as we have a final song of um, reflecting and commitment.